This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book under the title Christian Fundamentals, the Subdivision Redemption and its Consequences. This evening our subject has, has to do with access into his presence. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join with us, will you switch off for a little while while we read together Exodus chapter 25. <coughs> Just one word with regard to this Exodus 25. Uh, you notice that there is no hesitation in speaking of a candlestick having lamps. You want to just beware that you don't invest words with meanings that have no connection with their actuality. It was so common to speak of a light in the days of the authorised version as a candle and a candlestick, that even when they had a lamp they called it a candlestick, but they knew full well that it was a lamp with oil in it. And you'll have to remember that sometimes when you're dealing with other words that have passed into the language and lost a good deal of their primitive origin. And then while we have 25 open, would you look at verse 29, where it speaks of the words thereof so many times, but it says, and bowls thereof to cover with all. Now in the margin it draws your attention uh, to the fact that it means to pour out with all. And that is the word used by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, when he said, Yea, though I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, he says, Though I be poured out like a drink offering over the great sacrifice of Christ, I rejoice. He could never save them by any sacrifice he did, but he can by my voluntary service follow in his steps and in some measure, in a small degree, imitate the vast love of Christ, the one he served. Well now it will not do for us to deal with Exodus 25 because we have the New Testament word access as one of the many blessed consequences of redemption and atonement to occupy our attention this evening. Now the first passage I turn to is not Ephesians chapter 2 but just without looking at the scripture itself reminding you that there is a question asked by the prophet Amos. He says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? Well, that means to say you may physically walk together, but you may be carrying on like anything while you're doing it. That's not the point. You cannot walk together in the true sense unless you are agreed. Well, now sin has come in and it's made a disagreement between us and our God so that we get the challenge. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? But there's something deeper and richer in this. This particular word agreed also means to meet. So shall we retranslate it for the moment? Shall two walk together except they have met? Well, that's physically impossible, isn't it? If you haven't met, you cannot walk together. Well, that's a truth for us to remember. Well, then you come to Isaiah 53. And in two verses, we have the word to meet. The first one is, the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And originally it is, the Lord hath made to meet on him. Shall two walk together, except they have met? And then at the end of Isaiah 53, it says, he made intercession for the transgressors. That's the same word, to meet. He made a meeting place for the transgressors. 
All friends, we've got a meeting place. Our sins have been met, and now we can be met in grace and love. So that is a preface, as it were, to our thoughts this evening on this most wonderful consequence of redeeming love, that we who were once far off are made nigh, and as a result we have access. Yea, says the epistle to the Ephesians, we have access with boldness and confidence through the faith of him. Now, shall we turn to the Ephesians, chapter 2, which gives us this teaching, and notice, in passing, the disposition of subject matter in this chapter, because it's helpful to see the arrangement of doctrine and teaching in the Apostles' ministry. Look at the first verses of chapter 2. In time past, in time past, you were sinners. And then verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy. And then in verse 11 and 12, that at that time you were without Christ. And verse 13, but now in Christ. In the first set, there is sin and death and redemption. In the second, it's not sin and death, it's distance and hopelessness. In the first place, you have a responsibility for your sinfulness. In the second place, you have no responsibility for being born a Gentile, you couldn't help yourself. But nevertheless, to be a Gentile in those days was to be far off. However good you might be, you couldn't be near unto God like the people of Israel were. So we are dealing in Ephesians 2 with the distance that sin has made and come in, and we, being among the nations, have been defined as those who are far off indeed. We are made nigh, it says, made nigh in the blood of Christ. Our version says, made nigh by the blood of Christ. And it may be interesting for you to know that although the preposition N can be translated by sometimes, when you see a whole collection of the word in coming together, I've just put down some of them here in this very passage, in the flesh, in the world, in Christ Jesus, in ordinances, in one body, in one spirit, in the blood of Christ. You're going to lift that one out and put by. Why? Who told you to? The one who was reading it in the original would see the same word repeated over and over again. And sometimes that sheer repetition is on purpose and we must keep it. Now in chapter 1 verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. There's the originating cause, through his blood. But here we have this access in, in. Now what way do we need in? Well I think we'll have to examine the word which means access and we may come to our conclusions in a moment. First of all, the Greek word, made up of two parts, pros, which means towards, and unto, always has a direction of attracting and going towards a person. It occurs in the first chapter of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. It doesn't mean physically near, 
It means in intention and purpose and plan and hope and love everything. All in one accord. The same as if anybody uh, goes with you to Houston or wherever it might be to see you off on a long journey and as the train leaves the platform they call out, well I'm with you all the way and you turn around and say, oh how can you be because you're not travelling with me? Yes, you wouldn't do that. You know what they mean. They're leaving you behind or you're leaving them behind but they're with you. That was the way in which he was the word, was with God. I and my Father are one in purpose and plan. His will and my will are exactly the same. So that the only one who is ever recorded in Scripture, in prayer, the only one in the record of any saint that's recorded for our edification, who has ever knelt down in the presence of God and said, Father, I will. That's the Son of God. There was perfect harmony there. Pros agogi. Now the word agogi sounds a strange word in our language, but it's one of tremendous ramification. It means to go. It means to lead. And it comes in the word synagogi, which is a synagogue, where people all come together. And this means to be led towards. What a wonderful figure, isn't it? Christ taking us by the hand and says, Now don't fear. You're far off, but I have made you nigh. Draw near, don't hesitate. Don't stand outside and rub your hands and say, I don't like to go in. Here's a welcome for you. You remember how our Saviour who knew the Father's heart put those words into a parable. There was the Father, and an Eastern Father was more of an autocrat than the Fathers today. It's the children who are autocrats today, and they ought to be something else, but we've passed that by. But he said, it was when he saw his prodigal son afar off, it was the father who did the running. He went out and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. So don't think that there's any sort of holding back and reserve on the father's heart. If once you're made nigh in Christ, the door's open. He says, come in. Some people put welcome on the mat. But we'd like to know the welcome's inside as well. Well, now we have this cross agogi. I'd like to give you the um, actual words. Here they are, Ephesians 2, 18. For through him we, the both, have access by one spirit unto the Father. And that again is found in <coughs> chapter 3, where we have, um, uh, where is it, in chapter 3, in verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. By the faith of him would take us rather far afield. But do distinguish between my faith in Christ and his utter faithfulness. When the apostle says, I live by the faith of the Son of God, he didn't mean I live by my faith in him. He says, I live because he's utterly trustworthy and faithful. And this matter has been discussed, and it was a, an article was written in the um, Bible League Quarterly, all discussing this, so I ventured and they printed my answer. That was a new, a, a wonderful step in the direction of recognising that the chapel of the open book even existed. But I remember many years ago, W.H. Griffith Thomas, who left this country and became the principal of the Philadelphian Bible School, he wrote to me, and the answer is in the Berean Expositor of any early number, can you justify your translation, the faith of Christ, meaning something different from your faith in him. And if anyone wants to see that discussed, 
they'll find it one of the early numbers of the Breton, which is on the shelf on their library. So now we've got this word. Now will you turn to Romans the fifth chapter, because we've got it again. Romans the fifth chapter, verse one and two. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. You see the sequence. We are justified. We have peace. We have access. Well then presently this access is expanded by the word that comes in verse 10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God, and reconciliation, you see, is the other side of the meaning of the word access. You can't have access to a person unless reconciliation has taken place. And then we have reconciliation once again in verse 11. If you're reading the revised version, you read, by whom we have now received the reconciliation. It's the same word that we've already had in verse 10. But the revisers didn't make a mistake because in the day when the, uh, uh, I mean the authorised version didn't make a mistake, for in the day when this was translated, the word to at one anybody, at one, not atone, at one, was in common use. As I've quoted in these meetings before from Shakespeare, one character says he goes to make atonement between his brother and the Duke of Gloucester. He wasn't going to offer any sacrifice, he was bringing about a reconciliation. So don't mix this word atonement up with the offering of Christ. That's another story altogether. This atonement is based upon that one, not vice versa. Well now, the next word I think we ought to consider, oh, first of all, I'll give you one more reference in the first of Peter, chapter 3. The first of Peter, chapter 3. And the, the 18th verse. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Here we have this pros ago. See, to, to bring us, which gives us the pros agogi, the access. He brings us. We have the consequence. And while we're looking at that, you see there's another aspect of redemption in Peter chapter 1, where he says, in verse 18, that we're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. Redemption in chapter 1 and access in chapter 3. Redemption in chapter 1 of Ephesians and access in chapter 2. They must follow in that order. You must be first redeemed before atonement can be offered. You must come out of Egypt under the Passover before you can get into the wilderness and have anything to do with the tabernacle. All these things are in perfect harmony, type and reality. Well, then there's another expression which is parallel, only saying the same thing from another point of view, and that is the word to be made nigh. Well, shall we look at that in Ephesians chapter 2? Now, the word but now, we already observe, was balancing the ver in verse 4, but God. And this interjection is a most wonderful one in the New Testament. Whenever you come across but now or but God, watch it. It means to say we've come to an end of that. 
and God has interfered and now this takes place. Don't slur over it quickly. So let's look at what happened in verse 12, what sort of people we once were. That at that time you were without Christ. Well, there's no possibility of talking about access into the presence of God to anybody of whom it can be said they're without Christ. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, well, aliens can have no access. They're not allowed to come in. And strangers from the covenants of promise, strangers would have no access, having no hope and without God in the world. They're outsiders with a vengeance, aren't they? Now then, the change, but now, all but now. In Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh in the blood of Christ. In that union with him and all that that offering meant, we are made nigh. Then while we're looking at the word may nigh, will you turn to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19. It's very right that the word may nigh comes in Hebrews because Hebrews is not to do with initial salvation and redemption. It has to do with the tabernacle service and access and atonement. Hebrews seven nineteen For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope the bringing in is to be made nigh, to be brought in, is this same emphasis. And of course, the man who wrote that, he knew that the word perfect meant to bring to an end, to take to a goal. So he's emphasised it two ways round. He said the law didn't bring you in, it left you outside. But this hope, all this better hope, it goes right through the veil into the very presence of God and not merely a, 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 a holy place on earth but the holiest of all in heaven itself. And then in chapter 10, verse 22, or I must go back to verse 19, because once more, this access, this being made nigh, is always depending upon something. And that's something, the finished work of Christ. So that we have to bring two things together. We are made nigh, before we can be exhorted to draw nigh. That's obvious, isn't it? We're only putting into practice and exercising what is ours only in virtue of the work of Christ. So verse 19, having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, boldness of access with confidence in Ephesians, boldness to enter into in Hebrews, not an unholy boldness. You know, friends, I think sometimes we misunderstand God the one thing I think he would abhor would be shuffling our feet, looking downcast, rubbing our hands together as though our parents were all, uh, what's his name, Uriah Heaps, you know, and telling God, oh, we're all humble, and our fathers were all humble, and so was our mother and our grandma, all humble. Those people are an abomination. God says to you, stand up. You remember in one or two occasions, a man fell down and God said, stand on my feet. He's lifted you up. He's made you a child of God. Don't grovel. And it's rather suggestive that the very word that proscunio, that means to prostrate yourself in worship, is never used in Paul's epistle to the church of the one body. Never. You don't prostrate yourself. You honour God by standing as a son and serving him as a son serves with a father. No taking liberties. 
but standing where Christ has placed you. I think that honours him and honours his son. So it says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, here it is again, you see, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, well, having all those things, what's the consequence? Well, surely, let us draw near, you see, let us. Let us draw near with a true heart and so on. <coughs> if you... <coughs> I don't know whether that's blown this microphone to pieces, those who are listening to this tape, but still, here we are. Do the best we can in the foggy weather in London. Um, Colossians chapter 1. I hope I get a good mark for that. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. We were sometimes far off. We were sometimes aliens. Verse 13 of Ephesians says, But now in Christ Jesus, you were sometimes were far off. When we come to Colossians, and it says in verse 21, And you that were sometime alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you. You see, there's the, there's the alienation, a double alienation. We were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, but aliens from the life of God. What desperate outsiders we must have been. What a wonderful thing to bridge that gulf and to make us near, so that we can dare stand in the presence of our, of our God and know all our frailty, all the many things that can be said against us, and actually say in his presence, so near, so very near to God, nearer I cannot be, for in the person of his Son, I am as near as he. Do you doubt that, friends? Would you hesitate to say that? That's confidence and boldness by the faith of him. That's nearness. No half measures there, friends. Well, then the next is this. This emphasis on the making near, this particular word, I'll give it to you, enus, although you, you, you wouldn't spell it with an N, E-double-G-U-S, if you want to try to pronounce it at all like the Greek, it's E-N-G-U-S, the same as the word anchor, is not, there's no N in it in the Greek. And this means to be made near or nigh. I'd like to give you two or three references in the Old Testament to show you that it has to do with kinship, this nearness. Leviticus 21, verse 2. Leviticus 21, verse 2. Uh, it says in verse 1, And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto the priests, the son of Aaron, and shall say unto them, There shall none be defiled for the dead among his people. But for his kin, that is near unto him, that is for his mother, for his father, for his son, for his daughter, for his brother, you see. So there's the idea, near, nearness of kin is this word that we are using in Ephesians chapter 2 to be made near. Or if you look at Numbers 27 verse 11. 27 verse 11. And if his father have no brethren, then ye shall give his inheritance unto his kinsman that is next to the kin of his family. 
There again, the one who is near, a kinsman. Well, you know what I'm going to do now, don't you? I hope so. I'm going to turn to Job, the 19th chapter, and I'm going to read those words which I suppose are as well known as any part of Job, when he said, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And that word is the kinsman Redeemer. It doesn't mean the word redeem at all. It simply means my next of kin liveth. But who's my next of kin? That's the word for redeemer in the Old Testament. No other word is translated redeemer, except one who is my next kinsman. Oh, what a thought. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, that the children being partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who all their lifetime were subjected to the fear of death in bondage. That's the kinsman redeemer. And while we have Job 19 before us, look at verses 14 and 15. My kinsfolk have failed, and my familiar friends have forgotten me. They that dwell in my house and my maids count me for a stranger, and I'm an alien in their sight. Is that accidental? I've got a stranger and an alien here in relation to the true kinsman and then the look at my other kinsmen who all failed. No man can by any means redeem his brother. All the efforts of man will never bring you nigh to God. You may have the most gothic cathedral that's ever been conceived and built. You may have the most marvellous ceremonies that man could invent and that can leave you still outside and you could have a place which would never be looked upon as a sacred building at all, and you can dare say, and every place is hallowed ground. We have a meeting place, friends, of which the ark and the mercy seat was a poor, fading picture. The mercy seat is Christ, and he gives us this access. Well, now when we come back to Ephesians 2, instead of finding, like we have in the epistle to the Hebrews, that we have access through the veil, that's the tabernacle, the access here has to do with something else that was erected and made a barrier. So we must come back to Ephesians 2. He says in verse 14, For he is our peace. And at the end of verse 15, So making peace. And then he comes back to verse 14, he is our peace who hath made the both, I put the V in rightly so, he hath made the both, whoever the both may be, one. And at the end of verse 15, for to make in himself of the twain one new man. So there's a balance. There's a peace here which has to do with making two into one. Now this doesn't mean the sinner is brought to God. The both, the twain, was the Jew and the Gentile, who through the Acts of the Apostles were not one, in the full sense of the word. Let the Apostle Paul tell you the character of the union between a Gentile who believed Christ and the Jewish stock. He said the Jewish stock was a true olive tree, and the Gentile believer was grafted like a wild olive contrary to nature. Now that's one position, isn't it? But here we have the other one. Peace has been made. The both and the twain have been created as one new man. Now what was between them then? He hath broken down the middle wall of partition between them. 
What's the middle wall of partition? Well, you know, or most of you know, that the temple had an outside court to which the Gentile was permitted, and then he came up against a barrier. And that barrier contained slabs of marble. And on those slabs of marble, there were inscriptions carved. And as I've said before, but I want to make everybody know it, that if you ever visit London, you get back behind Selfridges in Oxford Street, you'll find the Palestine Exploration Fund's office. You can open the door and walk in, and you'll see the very slab that our Saviour looked at in the Temple of Jerusalem. And there is the inscription which reads like this, No one, being a foreigner, is permitted to pass this balustrade. Whoever does so will be responsible for his death which would immediately follow. And the Roman power gave Jerusalem the right to put an alien to death who dared to desecrate their temple. You see? Well, that's the middle wall of partition. But what does it mean to us? We're not going to bother about entering into a temple of Jerusalem. No, it has a significance, though. He says, it's the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Now, what does this mean? Well, the word ordinances is the word decrees. And if you'll turn back to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15 and 16, you'll see that they had to have a meeting at Jerusalem because of the difference there was between the Jew and the Gentile that believed in Christ. They had a meeting and at last they came to the conclusion that they would, um, in verse 19 of chapter 15, Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. But, he goes on to say, Moses of old time hath him in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. So here was the difference between the Jewish believer and the Gentile believer. And you remember how the church did not hesitate to call Peter to account in the 11th chapter after he'd seen Cornelius, they called him to account and said, Peter, we hear you've been among the Gentiles and you've actually eaten with them. Then they want to tell me the church began at Pentecost. And here's Peter being reprimanded by the church for eating with a Gentile. We've got no knowledge of the difference there was in those early days. And the horror that a Jew would have, even though he was a Christian, of sitting down with a Gentile who had eaten something offered to an idol, who had something that was strangled, all contrary to the Levitical law. That was a middle wall of partition. You could never have had a meeting like we have in this chapel. We could never say after the meeting as we do on the Saturday meeting. Now after this meeting is over, if you'll all adjourn and go downstairs, you'll find there's a little refreshment waiting for you. Because we should have two downstairs to go to. The Jewish lot would go down one side and the Gentile lot go down the other and they wouldn't even drink out of the same cups. They'd have to have them guaranteed that they're never washed up in the same water. These things are still going on. When I was on the Queen Mary crossing the Atlantic, there was a Jewish rabbi there and he told me I was talking to him. Oh, he says they guarantee that that cup and that plate and that saucer is never dipped into the water that is used for washing up the Gentiles' cups and saucers. Are you imagine that being in the church? That's a middle wall, isn't it? Well, he said that distance is gone, friends. It's all over. 
The Jew has gone out into his present blindness. He's taken all those scruples with him. The middle wall of partition's gone. The enmity there's destroyed. Why? I've made one new man. The church of the one body is not Jew. The church of the one body is not Gentile. The church of the one body is a completely new creation. For that word to make is the word to create. One new man. So, making peace. That's the peace that's in you. And that gives us the access. So we'll go on in verse 16. And that he might reconcile the both. Don't forget the the in front of this word every time. The specific both. Unto God in one body. You see, some people have said, oh, this means the sinner and, and the Lord. But you can't recognize, you can't reconcile the sinner and the Lord unto God. The both, that's got no meaning. It means these two conflicting parties that are now made one. In one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. Those that were nigh was a title of the Jewish people. Those that were afar off grows right out to the very ends of the earth and gathers them together and makes them one new man. One of the attempts I made many years ago to illustrate this, I don't know whether it may appeal to somebody, was I had just a little sketch of a country garden with beehives in it. And in the middle of the sketch, I'd got two beehives standing together like my two hands are now, you see. And if you know anything about the bees, they go out, foraging for honey, and they come back to their own hive, and they crawl in. If one by accident goes on, the other one is nearly always stung to death. See? Well now, when the honey is flowing well, and we want to, uh, what is it, the, the financiers, they say they want to reduce their overhead charges, you take the bees unawares, you pick up this hive and take it right down that end of the garden, you pick up this hive and take it right end of the garden, and you put another brand new hive right on between the two. So when the poor baffled bees come home, they're not sure whose hive it belongs to. And so, they settle down, one new hive, so making peace. Because one can't say, you're a Jewish bee, and the other turn around and say, you're a Gentile bee. Because, is one hive standing in the middle where the two were. It's a crude illustration, but it may help to see that this is something new that's made. We haven't joined Israel. We're not partakers of the promises of the fathers. It doesn't mean that once we didn't have any place in Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and now we've got it. They're all gone. God says to this people of Israel, I will not be your God during the time of your low army condition. That's Hosea. So here's a brand new people. That's where we come in. We are not a second-rate Israel. We're not spiritual Israel at all. They're out of it. And the Gentiles out of it, as such. But newly created, one new man. And so it says, He came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him, we, the both, here we are again, have access by one Spirit unto the Father. And you see, these terms are coming in the unity of the Spirit presently in chapter 4. There is one body, one Spirit, you've got those words. Even as you're called in one hope with your calling, they were without hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You've got most of the terms there. So they're looking back to the bond of peace, which is here made. We're simply keeping 
what God has made. Now, verse 19, Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Always a new company altogether. This is our high calling. The fellow citizen is defined for you in Philippians chapter 3, in case you think it's made in the citizenship of Israel, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our conversation is in heaven. And that word conversation is the Greek word polite humor. P-O-L-I-T. It means polite. Because the idea of dwelling in a city meant you were a polite person. And if you lived in the suburbs, which is beneath the wall, you were a rough and ready person. That's a bit for the people who live in their country villas now, isn't it? Because they are villains who live in villas. Did you know that? That's the way that words change. Well now, here we got it. For our polite humour, our citizenship, exists, not merely is, but exists in heaven, from whence also we look for the Saviour. That's our citizenship. It's there, not down here. Israel never knew it. We're not coming into something that they had and now they allow us to come in. A Jew comes in and a Gentile comes in on exactly the same terms. And we leave our heathenism outside and he leaves his Abraham, Isaac and Jacob outside. And they have access in one spirit, in one body. What a position to have. Now therefore you're no more strangers and foreigners. You hear the words that were written on the slab at Jerusalem? Anyone being a stranger, <laughs> you can worry about that. I shan't now worry because I'm forbidden to go into that temple. Look further down the chapter and see what he could say. Verse 21, in whom all the building thickly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. He said, I didn't worry about whether you'll shut me out of your temple, for I myself am a part of the true temple in which the Lord Christ, according to the prayer of chapter 3, could dwell in my heart by faith. Now there's only a few minutes left, and I think I would like you to keep Ephesians 2 open and turn to Romans 5 so that we can see just a little bit of the way in which these are parallel. The basis of reconciliation in Romans 5, as we've seen, is justification by faith and peace with God. Now, it says further down in, um, in verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and we rejoice we boast in hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we boast in tribulations. And then we, we go on to see the word peace, reconciliation and access. We've got the word in Romans 5. And we've got them repeated um, where it says in chapter 2, uh, by grace are you saved through faith. And that of yourselves it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. No boasting. And in Ephesians 2, we had no hope. And in Ephesians, he is our peace. In Ephesians, the enmity is destroyed in Romans 5. When we were enemies, he died for us. And then we have access, the same as we have in Romans 5, access. Here then it's evident that this access is a consequence of redeeming love. Nothing else could make us nigh. That which stood in our way, the barrier, was sin. And that is gone. And the moment sin has gone, we don't stand still waiting and shuffling our feet. 
we now go and fly like a little child to a father's arms, reconciled, at one, at peace, access in one body and one spirit. Surely this ought to warm our hearts and help us to realise that whatever may happen to us and the opinions of one another about us and whether they accept us or whether they shut us out, we walk with him. He walks with us. And one day, all this is going to be realised in a sense that the scripture warns us no one at the present moment can compute. Arising out of this access, there should be a continuance that those who have such access, Ephesians 2, are accepted, Ephesians 1, and should seek to be acceptable as other parts of the scriptures give. But still, I leave that with you. It might be wise to leave you a little bit to do for yourself, because after all, we are Bereans. We search and see whether these things are so.